But when I got to the end of the book, I thought I was over and I said, I can't really be over because this really represents everything that I've done since I um, came to Chicago or really since I went to Racine and first did organizing and um, started to have a relationship with the Black Panther Party. And it, all of that was informed by the 10-point Black Woman Program. And that's really what is informed so much of what I did, what I learned from that. This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the book club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website, all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. Her book with the world. And she's made my job incredibly easy. All I have to do is you know, send out a few emails. Oh, Helen's writing a book. Amazing. I've been waiting this for this for such a long time. I'm so excited. Um, so many people love, admire, and ins are inspired by Helen, and it's really, really exciting to have this launch event here at Haymarket House. Um, I'm not going to go too much into uh, Helen's bio right now. I'm going to let Laura introduce Helen, but uh, I would like to introduce uh, Laura Washington uh, real quick. But before I do, I'd like to let everybody know that we'd like to everybody to keep their masks on tonight. Uh, we will have a cocktail reception after uh, the event. And we're going to have a question and answer section uh, after uh, the conversation between Lauren and Helen. So thank you so much for coming, everybody, tonight. This is really, really a special evening, um, and I'm, we're all really thrilled to be a part of it. So Laura Washington is a Chicago Tribune contributing columnist and political analyst for ABC7 Chicago. Washington brings decades of experience as a multimedia journalist, and nonprofit professionals specializing in African American affairs, local and national politics, race, and social justice. Yes, she does. Yes, she does. <laughs> she is. She is the former editor and publisher of the Chicago Reporter, and has served as deputy deputy press secretary to Chicago to Chicago Mayor Harold Washington. Can everybody hear me okay? Yeah. Well, welcome. What a turnout we've got. Standing room only. If we got any more chairs, we can maybe bring in. That might help. But uh, it's, it's good to be full, a full house. And especially at this location, because Haymarket, obviously a gorgeous building and incredibly important history of publishing in Chicago. Uh, no wonder they're publishing Helen's book. They're very smart uh, publishers. But also, Helen has a, a personal connection to the place, which she's going to share with you in a second. But let me just do, I'm just doing a real brief uh, a bio on her because it's all in the book. And we don't want to spill all the beans tonight. Helen's just going to give you a taste of it because we've got to buy the book after this conversation. Um, but I want to just, just, just a few highlights. Helen is a lot, lifelong activist 
and the roots of her activism began decades ago in the anti-Vietnam War movement and around a strike for African-American studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. She moved on to many other causes, from organizing for welfare rights to, to working on getting a free legal clinic. Her work was inspired by the Black Panther Party. She later moved to Chicago in 1972 to continue that work in Uptown. And that's where we, I, th I think most of us are very familiar with her work. As we all know, her activism eventually intersected with politics. She worked on the campaign to elect Chicago's black mayor, first black mayor, Harold Washington, who I was, had the honor of working with. And uh, then she moved into aldermanic politics, served six terms as an alder person representing the 46th ward. After retiring from the council, she went on to do political and policy consulting and co-founded the West Side Center for Justice a hub of legal and activist social justice organizations. During the first year of the pandemic, she devoted her time to completing the book that we are celebrating tonight. Helen Schiller. connection to this building, to Haymarket, and also uh, your connection to the people in this room. Yeah. So in this room, oh my gosh, there's like, the, the people in this room are really the story in this book. Um, so actually, I really want to start by first, if I'm going to, I want to, everyone who, I want to first acknowledge my family and ask you all to raise your hands. Because there's a bunch of you in the room. <laughs> I want to recognize the members of the Black Panther Party, the Young Lords Organization, and the Intercommunal Survival Committee who are all in this room. I want to recognize the people who are here who worked in my aldermanic office so many years. political campaigns in one way or another or in the policy stuff that I did while I was in the And among us is at least one person who served with me in the city council, Congressman Chewy Garcia. say I first got to know you, I first became aware of you and started to follow you 
when I covered Harold Washington's uh, campaign for mayor in 82, 83. And then it's part of his administration, and we've connected in many, many other ways since then. But I, kind of, I consider you family, too, and your family family, because I worked with Mark Zalkin in the mayor's press office. He was assistant press secretary when I was deputy press secretary. Brendan, I don't even know if you remember this, Brendan. Brendan was an intern working, we worked together yeah. in, in an intern at the Chicago Reporter, and he was something that, he was something, the journalism career, uh, we, we, we missed him for the journalism, but uh, he, went to, he went on to do some great things in the, in, in the legal world. And of course, you know, we're neighbors and friends, and so yeah. I wanted to start, though, by asking, the book to me was so impressive because you know if you know Helen, you know how methodical, how focused, how how uh, mature she is about everything that she takes on, and and what a great thinker she is, and the amount of research and work and detail that goes into that book, and that that book is not just a history of Helen; it's a history of Chicago politics, which I think the scholars are going to be studying for years to come. So congratulations on such fine work. Away. It's really a bunch of stories. Absolutely, and absolutely, and so. But you have a whole lifetime to share, and you got a bunch of stories, more than a bunch of stories. How did you conceive? How did, what made you decide to do the book when you did it, and how did you go about doing it? So there was a lot of discussion I had with various people, especially George Atkins and then Tom Johnson about and and Brendan uh, about writing the book and I needed to do it. And initially they were really pushing me to do it in um, when I was still a woman, and I just wasn't ready. And uh, so I put all, you know so there's a lot of thought about what would go into a book if I did it. But ultimately in, in 2018 I broke my foot, so I had a lot of time, and I uh, started writing stories. And then um, when, and and in but before that in 2016 um, I had I ended up being sort of the de facto archivist for a lot of our stuff that we did for Keep Strong, All Chicago City News. Um, a lot of the stuff that we printed for Harold Washington, but for so many things over the years. And during the course of that, we have many photographs. So I have probably about 50 or 60,000 uh, undigitized negatives. Uh, but I got, uh, but uh, it was an opportunity to get students at Columbia College to digitize about 15,000 of them. Wow. And so I spent four months at Cape Cod in the middle of winter in 2016, in the middle of the primary election that year, and um, digitizing these and putting a data, I mean, taking the digitized copies and creating a database and trying to get a handle on what, the, what was there in the, with the thought that maybe the first thing I would do would be a, a book of photos mm -hmm. that would tell the history. And, um, and since I was on the East Coast in Massachusetts in the middle of their primary, um, I, it was the only news I really got was about what was going on, and I was very frustrated. Um, I was, after, you know, everything that's happened since then to me was foreshadowed, or actually before then was foreshadowed initially, um, the polarization that we saw uh, during when, after Barack was elected and then through this period of time since then really was foreshadowed from what happened in, in, in Chicago uh, when Harold was elected and then and certainly during my time in city council. So uh, that was really behind ultimately the real intent behind why I needed to write the story because it was clear to me that in the midst of all that polarization, in the midst of gain, gains made and, and victories, 
being lost now that it would be really important to um, to I thought that there were lessons in mm -hmm. what I had done and in that history that uh, and in the different stages of it that would be helpful and informative today. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's really important. so you're suggesting it was almost like a, a straight line from Harold Washington and from your maybe before that through the day which which in some ways like you said foreshadows there were a lot of connections but mm -hmm. the the activity the politics in Chicago I think really foreshadowed what we were to see um, in the last several years and the level of polarization we have today is a mm -hmm. reflection of that mm -hmm. but also the issues that we face I was um, I was at a uh, a conversation, a similar conversation earlier last week uh, between e Ewing and um, uh, Sasha, 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 no, Sasha Ann Simon. Simon, so it's, Ewing is a, Sasha a, a Simon. wonderful scholar at the University of Chicago. And she's, she's re recently written a book, mm -hmm. um, a poem of poems about 1919, mm -hmm. and it's now in a play. So it was part of the discussion. And what was really striking to me was when she described how those poems came about. And they came about from a report, um, a very long report that was written, I think she said a thousand pages at least, that was written after the 1919 rights, after the uh, Red Summer. And it had all of the, it, it basically had all of the, all these different suggestions of what needed to be done to prevent that from happening in the future. Mm -hmm. And to me, all I could think of was the Kerner Commission report, the report after the, uh, you know, about police misconduct and what led to the consent decree. There are so many different times, those are the ones that immediately came to mind, but I know over and over and over again, there have been these events that specifically and racism and the reaction to it which was violent and then the um, and then a, and a, and a series of recommendations about what to do about that and then nothing happening um, and then it's over and over and over again so it seemed to me that um, it's it's I think the point about that is that that's where we're at and it's about time that we stop talking about what ought to be done and just start doing it. And we're not gonna, and instead of just repeating over and over again what these things are, that we need to may have a demand, make a demand, we need to create the city that forces the issue and says, okay, if you're gonna run for an office, then think about what it is that you're gonna do or demand, or we're gonna be part of demanding together, because it's not one or the other, uh, to really start looking at these things new. We need to change the narrative mm -hmm. and start looking at things from the perspective of how does it happen how does it have to be different if we really want that change? And the demand. Well, I, I think it's really important because you, you were depressing me until you got to the end of this point about we're, we're, we're in this terrible endless cycle. But you think that this is a moment when we can change that cycle? You're hopeful? I, I don't know if it's a moment that we can change it or not. I'm saying we have to, have to. We have to look at that and, and how not accept that? any longer. Well, I mean, it's part of the reality. I mean, come on, we go a few steps forward and then one or two or three steps backwards. And um, and, and I know a lot of people like to say, you know, the more things change, they stay the same. But I think that's a very defeatist attitude. I think that change can happen. Um, but in, in, in demanding and, and, and even suggesting change or looking at suggestions, these are all suggestions, they're great changes, but there's always a reaction. Look at what's happening with the Safety Act, right? There's always a reaction. The reaction usually is based on fear and mongering and not on facts. 
on misinformation. And we have to we have to sort of cut through that and look at and and honestly, we you move mountains one show full at a time. I don't think anything happens really quickly. Having a long term perspective, understanding that these things are prolonged struggles is really important in order not to get totally frustrated. Uh, but we have to keep moving forward, and we have to find ways in which to do that. And the key issue or concept in my mind around this is creating a sea. And creating a sea is in the ocean. Yeah, so that you can see, you know, large amounts of water moves, look, you know, moves things, changes things. Being informed by the past, but looking to the future to be able to make sure that those changes continue to go on are lasting mm -hmm. and are able to survive the onslaught, which we know will always come because there's always resistance to change. So I know you in, in the book with sort of lessons learned and learned in, in some points that you that you want to you want to march on with. Um, can you give it give us a, a concrete example of something that you learned that you, in your in your life in your career. This is, there could be a tool or strategy for the kind of change you're talking about. Well, it's kind of interesting. I got to the end of the book and I realized. <laughs> I was consistently, at every stage of my life, um, dealing with housing, education, healthcare, and police misconduct in every single stage of my life. So that all those stories, and, and they ended up not really being even linear in the book. They were very, they were kind of circular, you know, and uh, so they're not even in just one place. The book is kind of chronological, but the stories and those issues are embedded through the whole thing. So there were a couple things. One. There is lessons about being an elected official, and especially in the city of Chicago, and um, and what it takes, I think, to really be responsive and be effective and to make change. And, and so those lessons are in the book. Um, but in addition, and I think they're important because I think that, and I think it's important how you approach a problem. And um, politics generally tends to want us all to be, very, you know, tends to be very superficial. And, you know, so how do you really get to the heart of a matter and really solve a problem? But when I got to the end of the book, I thought I was over, and I said I can't really be over because this really represents everything that I've done since I um, came to Chicago, or really since I went to Racine and first did organizing and um, started to have a relationship with the Black Panther Party, and it, all of that was informed by the Ten Point Platform and Program, and the that Black, the Black is the Black Panther Ten Point mm -hmm. Platform and Program, and that's really what is informed so much of what I did, mm -hmm. what I learned from that. So I then uh, ended the book with, a, I thought I was ending the book with a Black Panther uh, Ten Point Platform and Program, and then I was going through. Um, the photos for, you know, different reasons. I was reviewing the stuff and getting information actually to Haymarket for the book and came across um, in uh, one, one of my archives that happened to be on my computer uh, uh, a speech, what, uh, what we call the 10-point guide of action that we had taken from a speech that was made by David Du Bois, um, who, had, who, for you, who you don't, who may not know, was uh, W.B. Du Bois, Stepson, but he was also the editor of Muhammad Speaks and then the Black Panther paper and then a professor in uh, Massachusetts at Amherst College and uh, was a really smart man mm -hmm. who um, gave this speech about organizing and it was really a 10 point um, guide to action. And we had taken it and we had written it up and we used it and it's a very one of those points that, that especially <laughs> you, you gotta go back and check. Well, I'm it would be instructive right. of, no, of, of, of where we are right now. I mean, this this is the thing we're 
Well, you know, uh, okay, so, I mean, this, remember, okay, so the 10-point platform and program was originally written in 1968, and then in 1972, it was, um, it, 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 knew it was added to, it was broadened, it, it added, uh, added technology, as things had changed in technology become an issue in the world, um, and it also, uh, in, it became inclusive of all black and oppressed communities, which for us, in Uptown, organizing white people, was very helpful. <laughs> I know some people might have been upset by it, but but what are the main points? Um, and and full employment, full employment, an end to robbery uh, by capitalists of black and oppressed communities. The end to the kind of uh, of, of in today's verbiage, um, income inequality, uh, decent housing fit for the shelter of human beings, an education that exposes the true nature. Um, of this decadent American society on education that teaches our true history and role of, in the present-day society. Completely free health care for all black and oppressed people. An immediate end to police brutality and murder of black people, other people of color, and all oppressed people inside the, the United States. An immediate end to all wars of aggression. Um, and so on. So uh, clearly those are relevant to today. Mm -hmm. uh, the issue is similarly to the reports that are done, have been done that I mentioned about um, over and over again when there are various different um, uh, moments in time when there are clashes that have been generated as a result of, uh, of oppression of uh, black and poor people is that um, is, is, is that there have to that, that there have to be responses to those things we have to really do them so what did the Black Panther Party do they, they on the a notion of survival pending revolution created survival programs that responded to the needs that people had to show that it was possible to do that. There was no waiting on the government to do it. It was, we're going to do these things because that's what's necessary and needed in our community. Not, not, only, not only waiting on the government, not depending on the government and seeing that the exactly. government is going to do it. Okay. And as a result, we have many things that the government has now done mm -hmm. that didn't exist before. We have the Breakfast of Children program. We have testing of sickle cell anemia, the acknowledgement of sickle cell anemia. We have, um, uh, whatever. We've uh, helped out initially, you know, there were people that did health clinics, and in Chicago, there were all sorts of, I mean, the Young Lords had health, the Black Panther Party had a health clinic, the Young Lords had a health clinic, the Young Patriots had a health clinic, the Rising Up Angry also did, um, had, they also had a health clinic. And um, these are free clinics that ultimately now, the, and then the government started doing the clinics that are the federally, I forgot the, the verbiage for it, but they're federally funded, and they're, you know, they're, Income, whatever. Mm -hmm. Not the same as the free clinics uh, because they're not free, but it's the same idea and notion. So these are impacts that were had by the things that were done as models. Similar, actually, when Harold became mayor, as I recall, because he, you know, he was many of the people that were engaged in electing Harold Washington were very engaged in a series of, uh, of and they were all engaged in their communities many of them. Mm -hmm. So uh, Harold really reached out to all of us and said, we need you to do models for, I, you know, this is, we we're, we have to change government. We're not going to be able to change the government unless we have real examples of models and we need you to help us do that. And so in communities all over the city, people chose things that they were going to do. In Uptown, we did the Good Health Place, but people chose models they were going to create so that we sure. could learn what would work and what wouldn't work. It wasn't like, you're going to do it and that's what we're going to do. It was going to be like, we have to figure out and understand what the needs of the community are. You know what? Sorry. So Carrie Moe was right front and center in the Washington administration doing that work. Mm -hmm. So I think that that uh, it's what people 
you can't depend mm -hmm. that that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. So um, you went from being a, a street uh, activist, uh, and, and then you moved back here, and you were an activist in uptown, and did, did a, lot, a lot of other things around your activism, and then you became an elected official. Um, tell, share with us the difference between those two roles and what you learned. Mm -hmm. <laughs> One thing is that as a or, you know, as an activist, our demands were always do this. <laughs> and the expectation that whoever we're talking to was able to do it. Mm -hmm. As an elected official, especially initially, as an elected official who was not, I mean, initially I was part of Harold's team, but Harold died very shortly after, um, after I was elected, was elected right. and it was really like, how do I get things done when everyone is saying, don't talk to her? <laughs> um, and, and so I was able to figure that out, and I knew it would take me about two years anyway to do that. I started out trying, knowing that. Uh, but what was really clear was that the things that people expected and wanted to happen, happen very quickly, were not necessarily possible to happen quickly. I never, to me, anything is possible. So it was just a matter of figuring out what that was. Uh, but in order to be able to be effective, that meant I had to really explain, I had to tell that to people, I had to explain it to people. And I one of the biggest frustrations I have both had, uh, you know, with some of my colleagues, but also just generally with, with um, in all the different struggles we had in the community and things, and especially when there was things that I really wanted to do um, and could do not, exactly the way everybody expected it to be done um, was it was really critical to be in engaged in a process always of not just engaging people but also explaining what was mm -hmm. possible and what wasn't from my perspective which also meant i could get the pushback in order to be able to see well maybe i could go a little further or what is it or what maybe i'm not thinking about something but you but i guess the real point answer to your point is we always assume that someone in an elected office or someone we perceive to have power has more power than they really do. Mm -hmm. And on the one hand, on the other hand, that person in that situation always assumes they have less. They really need the push from the outside. They need to see this woman. They need to be pushed. I always loved when people came to me from the left because. People to your left, you mean? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> 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 so people that you come out of the city council. So, for instance, when we did the anti-apartheid legislation, uh, in 91, yeah, um, I, or maybe, yeah, maybe it was 90. No, it was 90. Anyway, when we did the anti-apartheid, it was 90. Legislation, um, it was very complicated. And I, I mean, I, you know, I think if all the money and I did ask a lot of questions on the budget, people call me the budget queen, but I'm not, and I didn't balance a checkbook, but, um, and I could track of someone's money, but international finance, uh, too much. So, not so much. So, um, actually, Prexy, who's here, Prexy Nesbitt, um, helped me put together a group of people who could really advise me and help me really. I understand what the issues were that we really needed to do in that ordinance to have a material impact on what was happening. Uh, because it was at a time when... And just explain what, was it, what that ordinance was. Yeah, so was this was at a particular time when um, uh, Nelson Mandela had been released 
and the South African government was trying to get, uh, I think George Bush was the president. Is that true? The South African government was trying to get, uh, I think George Bush was the president. Is that true? Um, to uh, to lift sanctions, the sanctions, U.S. sanctions against South Africa, and the, our goal was to make sure that didn't happen and to force the issue until there was not just that he was released, but that apartheid ended. And um, and so we needed to understand, I, so I needed to make that ca the case in the city council uh, that what we wanted in Chicago was that the three financial institutions that still had investments in South Africa, that we had to somehow give them encouragement to divest. And our encouragement would be to remove them from being able to participate in the city's municipal repository, which is a way that they make some money. And um, the three institutions were City, City Bank, is the only one that still exists. Uh, it was uh, the Continental Bank and First National Bank. And, um, and so that was our goal. And uh, ultimately, uh, we ended up, so I, I, it was a great campaign. And it coincided with Mandela coming to the United States. He didn't come to Chicago, but it was a very big deal in Chicago, and he did go to Detroit, and a lot of people went there. Um, and so a lot of, and, so, and public sentiment, which comes back to the sea, was very strong against apartheid. And people were confused about what was going on with the sanctions. So it was an opportunity really to educate people. And mm -hmm. I was, I mean, I spent hours with France Spielman to make sure she got it. <laughs> France Spielman is sometimes oh city hall reporter. Who never got it right. So <laughs> I spent hours with her. I think she, you know, because she always had a recorder, and so mm -hmm. I just kept talking until I felt like she understood what I was talking about. And I don't know if she did or not, but at least I didn't get really terrible press on it from her. Because mm -hmm. so in those days, the newspapers were, people read them much more than they do now. Um, so we, and you know, a lot of people were talking about it, but what happened was that we, long story, Sure. Long story short, because it was a long story. <laughs> Sorry, someone should have said something. We, um, so we finally got a, uh, after 17 drafts, uh, after 17 drafts, the pressure was on, and Edward came in with a, a uh, substitute ordinance. And the substitute ordinance was had great definitions. It was wonderful. And he, but none of the definitions corresponded to any teeth in the ordinance. <laughs> so I rewrote it. And, um, and we presented it to the council. And um, at the very last, so it had to pass because it looked like it was theirs. Um, and and uh, it got into committee, and we were in finance committee, and Burke threw a, a left curve to me about um, making a demand that some, there was some change he wanted in, in the financial language. And he said, if, you, if we can't make that change, we're not going to proceed with the vote. So I didn't know what to do um, because I didn't understand it. So I said, okay, I need a five-minute recess. I got my five-minute recess, ran to the telephone, called the woman in New York who really knew this stuff, asked her, told her what it was that he was saying, asked her if it made a difference. She said, no, it's bullshit. It doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> it won't have any effect. You can go ahead and get that passed. So I come back in. But there's a group of aldermen. Um, who are, it's in the journal, you can read it, a group of aldermen who were, um, I think it's in the journal, a group of yeah. aldermen who, um, who uh, were, were pushing from my left saying, no, we can't do that. And can't we, do, can't, we do. can't make that change. But, mm -hmm. but because they were doing that, 
he couldn't back off and throw something else at me. Mm -hmm. and, it was, and so it was great. It was wonderful. So I was like in the middle getting what I wanted, which was <laughs> to pass an ordinance that forced these folks that they wanted to continue to do it. So meanwhile, the backstory, the other thing that was going on was, and, and Burke didn't know this, was that I already had conversations with the both Continental Bank because the Community Renewal Society had all of their endowment at the, at the Continental Bank and the executive director was opposed to apartheid. So they told them that if they didn't divest that they were going to remove all their money. And, the, and these were smaller banks then. And First National, the person who did their public relations, their governmental relations was opposed to apartheid. And he loved the ordinance. So he was already, he was gonna, he, he got them pulled off of it and said, to, Anyway, so he was yeah. working on that end. So Burke thought he had the banks, but I had two of the three of them. So anyway, it got passed. But mm -hmm. it was it really helped me a lot that there were that's my example of people on the left. And they were pushing, right. but they were not necessarily people you think about. All of some of them might have been, but not all. Yeah. Speaking of the left, one of the things we've talked about is um, you feel that the right has been very effective at using some of the same strategies yeah. of the left, um, maybe even more effective. Well, it's, well it's, explain. Okay, so I, I don't know about so much of the left so much as what I. So, okay, so we get to Chicago and you can't do anything without. I, I'm not particularly interested in politics. You can't do anything without interacting with the machine. I mean, they have followers behind it really way. So we realized, or very quickly, maybe some of us already knew this, but I learned very quickly that it was really a question of structure and content. That the structure that the, the democratic machine had created was a very effective structure for organizing. It was great. It was the content that was a problem. Um, and so we function that way always. And to me, that's really one of the lessons. Mm -hmm. um, structure and content. But anyone can use structure and content, just like anyone can use a tool. Many of you know that there's a big issue, there was a big issue about TIFs and continue to be in the city, but that I use the TIFs. And I always said, the TIFs are a tool. It's how you use it. It's not, you don't want to the, throw the baby out with the baby. are not bad in and of themselves. No, they're yeah. just tools. Tools can be used either way. I think that the, the kind of structure that the democratic machine created in the city has been much more effective, or models of it, that model has been much more effectively used by the right than it has by anyone else. And um, how should how would the left use that structure? Same way, you can yeah. replace content with structure. There's very few organizations yet in this city that still exist that do door to door organizing and campaigns. Mm -hmm. Everybody's off doing their you know media stuff or whatever. Uh, if you're not face to face with people, if you're not dealing with people in all the time, not just at election time, responding, create you know responding to their needs, showing respect for hearing back what their concerns are, incorporating it into your policies and what you're developing and what you do every day, engaging people and being a part of that, how do you expect them to do anything else when it comes to an election other than be, to be you know, cynical about it? Right. And to lay back and say, what difference does it make? Even when we're in a situation like I think we are today, where what we have to do more so than anything else is be defensive. So right now mm -hmm. we're kind of on the defense, in my opinion. We um, mean, we meaning meaning the anybody who wants doesn't want to see fascism is on yes. the defense. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. that's, that's so one other theme okay. of the book okay. is fascism. The book starts with the story of my dad sitting me down in front of the TV, and when I was six years old, to watch the army, the the 
I mean, McCarthy hearings in front of Hewitt, the House on an American Activities Committee in the Senate, and him telling me, you might not remember this, but that, you know, what you're watching, you might be bored, whatever, but I want you to remember fascism and that that's something you always have to fight. Uh, that's been my in my head from the time I was six and informed not only by that, but I think, so, so, and I tried to sort of make this part of the backstory, but you know, all of the, the safety net that was created in the 30s and early 40s by the 30s primarily <coughs> during the um, Roosevelt administration was created, in fact, actually to prevent revolution, but I think, but uh, was a real safety net that was created and that had two aspects to it. One was that government actually has a responsibility when the to address issues or problems that people have when the economy excludes them or doesn't do its job. I mean, people are excluded from benefits of the economy. And two, that there's a sense of service, that there's a notion of service. Those two things really are the bookmarks. I mean, where those two things, along with this notion of this fear of fascism, um, are very important in terms of who I am and what, how I was, you know, sort of the, the circumstance, the, the context in which I was raised, the conversations over our dinner table when I was a kid. Um, so I think, and they're very much a part of the, context for me of the, of the book that I tried to um, talk about, trying mostly in footnotes so I didn't bore people, but you know, at least establishing what the context was was important. If you're enjoying the Haymarket Live series, you'll also be interested in a new book from Haymarket, Breaking the Impasse, Electoral Politics, Mass Action, and the New Socialist Movement in the United States by Kim Moody. In his latest book, Veteran socialist writer Kim Moody provides a masterful analysis of the political impasse which has shaped the rise of a new socialist movement in the U.S. Recurring economic and political crises, sharp inequality, state violence, and climate catastrophe proceed apace as the right ascends across the world, while the U.S. political scene remains defined and dominated by two capitalist political parties. Moody situates the historic electoral campaigns of democratic socialists such as Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, as well as the growth of organizations like the Democratic Socialists of America in this context, and incisively assesses the revived movement's focus on electoral strategies, ultimately arguing for an alternative orientation based in a politics of mass action, anti-racism, and independent working class organizing. Find Breaking the Impasse at haymarketbooks.org. Uh, just a couple more quick questions, and then we're going to get to your, your questions and comments. Uh, we're, you know, you're, you're, we're, in a, we're in a tough place. You're saying a lot of us are in a defensive posture. We're about to go into some citywide elections. A lot of people are saying that this may be historic in terms of the number of open automatic seats. Aldermen are retiring. They're resigning. They're running for other offices, and it might present some new opportunities for progressives. What advice would you have for both for candidates and also the mayor's races, of course, for both for candidates and progressive candidates and for progressive voters? In some words of advice. Well, let me let me give you my hopes. <laughs> my hope is for um, leadership in the city that is willing to think out of the box, that's willing to stop doing things again and again and again that are not successful, that don't lead to solutions. 
that have a different approach to policing, that have a different approach to mental health, that have a different approach or additional approaches to addressing uh, the basic needs that people have in order to make sure that they have a roof over their heads so they can create some stability in their lives. And that these other aspects that come in and around um, are no longer interfering, you know, are take are as much as possible, the barriers are removed or lessened so that people can ultimately begin to get to a point where they can realize their full potential. Um, to think out of the box on what we do about education. I, one of the consequences of the of really the period of time that we're in, starting really at least with Nixon, the initial reaction to the civil rights movement, if you will, um, has been to move backwards on all of the um, on the safety net that was created in the 30s. So public housing, public education, public transit. I mean, I was laughing the other day. They're talking about how we want to create this. Uh, uh, transit-friendly city, and in a situation where they're, we're completely, the, you know, removing resources from the transit system, and people don't want to use it, um, and there are all sorts of issues with it. it it's, you know, with education and public education, which has been completely undermined again and again and again. A public institution or service that we count on is resources removed from it. Look at the post office. Resources are removed yeah. from it. They're not able to function and do their job. People get angry, and then it becomes okay or possible to completely dismantle it. And so we can't go backwards, I don't think. We can't reconstruct what was. What we have to do is go forward and construct a new, new ways in which to do that. So my hope on the city level as well as elsewhere, but you start locally. I think you have to start locally. That's the biggest lesson we should have to last from the last 15, 20 years, um, is that uh, is that we really, we have a city council and a mayor that is in that mode mm -hmm. and that begins to do that work and has the ability, has the ability, whatever that means, <laughs> to be able to withstand what we know will be an onslaught against any efforts of change, because we already see that happen. Wow. And you mentioned before, like the models, the Harold Washington models, and, and so there are plenty of Models well, and their models all over the country. Right, People yeah, are right, really right, trying right. to do a lot right, of this. Right, 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 right. So you're a welder now. That's your, your latest. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get into welding, and how's that going? I've <laughs> always loved welding uh, sculptures. I mean, I, I, the first time that I was um, in Zimbabwe, which was actually 1989, I, I think I spent, and we were in Harare, and I must have spent, it's not very large, but I kept going, they have a great, they have a really great museum with, uh, sort of a, a museum which has a great outdoor sculpture garden. Um, I kept going back there. I, I just, you know, wherever I'm anywhere and I see sculpture, I've always loved it. So, but you know, I've been a little busy, been busy. in my life. <laughs> so um, I was visiting my brother, who had recently moved to um, a house outside of Houston, and he has a big backyard, and he, we're sitting in his backyard, and he's describing what he wants to do, and there was a section of the backyard he wanted to put a sculpture garden. So I thought, oh my God, this was like a year and a half ago, and I'm like, that's something I could do. You know, I'd finish the book, you know, <coughs> um, trying to figure out what I was doing in my life, and um, so I came back and started uh, sculpting. And you were taking classes yeah. and, and... So I took classes in one place. My niece who lives in Mexico said, oh, I know somebody here who has a sculpture studio, does classes. I went, she's in San Miguel de Allende. 
maybe watching, maybe not. Hi, Lisa. Um, and uh, so uh, Justice and I, my granddaughter, went there, and I took a bunch of from my birthday last year, and we, um, I took some classes and did some welding, and then went back again, and then came back here and found a really, really cool studio on the north side. They also do carpentry and technology and casting. Um, it's a great place. It's a not-for-profit. They do a lot of stuff with youth, and I go there at least once a week and spend three hours welding, sometimes mm -hmm. more. So when you get done with the book tour, the next thing is going to be you're going to have a show of your work. I could do that. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, most that's, of we'll all be there. It'll actually be mostly photos because I keep making things for people and having to do them. All right. So what about you all? What, Anybody want to have a question for Helen or just want to say how much you love her or anything? This is the floor is yours. Come Everyone on. knows that if you ask me a question, I talk yes, to you. Yes, yes. In the back there. Why don't you do a movie? I saw a Punch Nine. I didn't see a Punch Nine. Yeah, I don't know. Punch Nine. Why weren't you in the movie? They didn't interview me. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't think that. Um, I don't think that uh, I don't think that I've been. I mean, I was an alderman and I was outspoken, um, obviously. And um, but I was never. I was sort of. Uh, I don't know. Not, I, I don't know. I don't want to be. And you, you were, you were totally happy with that movie, as, as I recall. It's no, but they, they, they corrected what it. I did want. Okay, well, <laughs> well, we won't talk about that. But you had a lot of influence over. I how that like, movie ended up, but which was still, I really, I think the movie is very good. I think that it is good at setting the context. It's great cinematography. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, Harold was so photogenic. Yeah. And um, yeah. So uh, you know, there's. I would have gone less with the interviews and um, and a little bit more with the people and the stuff that you did. But I really liked it. If you haven't seen it, Punch Nine, it's it's a, it's a real yeah. great documentary. It's it's touring the country. It's touring the country now, but it's we're hoping it's going to be after they get done with the with the uh, showings in theaters. It's going to be streaming. Yes. Um, I love this idea that when you were an activist, it was sort of about pushing, and when you became an elected official, it was about receiving some of that pushing. And my Alderman's very progressive. Um, which makes me think she doesn't have a lot of time for um, people on the left who are pushing her. I feel like maybe you have some advice about the best way to try to get through somebody like that. Um, I feel like- It's hard to be general. She's very, well, she's so defensive because there's so many things going on um, that when I call, I feel like there's this first, this wall. So you, then it takes so much to get through that. but. It is sort of general, but like when you work with people, what was the best tactic other people could have to get through to you? Well, I think it's a symbiotic relationship. So um, I think it's really important to have vehicles that people have access in terms of responding to the very, the needs that they have that have to do with interacting with the bureaucracy on the one hand and the broader concerns they have about policy um, that they want. But I know that one of the issues that your alderman has relates to homelessness, which was a big, a big issue for us. 
And what I can say about that, and, um, and I kind of assume that she's feeling some of the same pressures that I did from the articles I've read, haven't talked to her, um, is that it's really important to also know that people have your back and that they're there and that they're also passing on to other people, are, you know, making the case uh, for why, in that case, homelessness, in this case, homelessness, but whatever it is, is something that it's important that that, that elected official is taking the position on. So if you know that people have your back, then it it's much easier to be able to have the kind of interaction you're talking about. Because homelessness is something that's hard to get people behind because it's so unsexy and it's so immediate, whereas affordable housing is such a long, I mean, you saw how long that takes, so. But they're, totally, but they're totally connected. I mean, and you have to make that so, connection. Uh, yes, Hi, Alderman. Hi. <laughs> uh, so I was uh, I was in Johannesburg, South Africa, recently at Nelson Mandela's house, which is now a museum. And I can't tell you what it meant to me to, to walk in and see the very first item that you see is a copy of that divestment ordinance, and just to be able to tell the people in the museum that that's my ward that. Did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> Brexit? Sorry, it's the first thing to see. Did you have something to do that, Brexit? Pardon me. Did you, you have something? I, I, I can't say that. Uh, <laughs> 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 we got a story here. I'm talking about it. Yes. So, so my question was, are you still in touch with uh, some of the activists that you work with from, uh, from South Africa and uh, Zimbabwe? Prexy Nesbitt, primarily. Share who Prexy is. Prexy is here. Prexy mm -hmm. is um, a longtime uh, activist around um, Southern Africa concerns. Um, worked for a while with the uh, was close and worked with the Mozambican government. Um, has been a, a teacher extraordinaire in multiple institutions, and um, is uh, been very effective and was very effective for many years really educating people in the city of Chicago about apartheid, about its impact on Southern Africa, and about what was really happening vis-a-vis um, -vis U.S. policy. Yes, please That we modeled ourselves after was what we saw in, in Uptown, and what we saw on the West Side. That was that we worked as a group. Yeah. Always. It wasn't any one individual. That's right. It was a real group effort. And, and linking the situation in South Africa with the situation here. Oh, yeah. Sense. Absolutely. That's great. Thank you. Yes. Um, speaking of someone that um, has listened to a lot of your stories and sat with your family and listened to their stories, and you have just a ton of amazing stories. I want to know one, because I know the book is told through story. How hard was it, and how did you decide what stories to use in the book? And what was your process for making sure that you remember these stories correctly and told all the nuances to these stories? Great question. Well, I had lots of conversations with the people that were engaged in the stories. Um, and sometimes it took a lot of conversations to remember it quite the same way. Um, and uh, I think that was like the most important thing. I mean, for some stuff, 
there weren't, I mean, the family, I had some family, all that kind of stuff, but that was mostly conversations on my memories. Although I have to say that my memories and my brother's memories often were different. And my youngest brother didn't live through some of this stuff, but, um, and I went with my version, but I always, <laughs> um, but I, but also, all, you know, so the, I, I really tried, if the story and talked, of, if someone was included in the story, I actually tried to send them that chapter. So there were a lot of people, there are some people who went through the whole book, um, but a lot of people got the chapters and were really helpful, pointed out things that I totally got wrong, um, added information that I didn't know or forgot. It was, yeah. Did you have to wrestle with anybody about uh, the versions that you wanted to tell? Brandon and I spent lots of time wrestling. <laughs> <laughs> and you, but you won. No, not necessarily. No, there was one story that I'm still not sure, but I went with this version because it made it because the truth of it was closer to to. It, 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 but I learned a huge amount. Oh my gosh! Yeah. Yes, back there. Is that Steve? Yeah. Hey, Steve. I got here late, so I'd like to ask you a question that's been raised. Uh, we have a few progressive older people in Chicago. One is mine and three men So the question I have is, and there's a lot of difficult challenges going on right now. What should they be doing to push a progressive agenda? Um, <laughs> these Think out of the box. Yeah, um, you talked about that a little bit yeah, already. Yeah, I did. Thinking outside the box. I, I, I think that, well, I mean, there are lots of things. I mean, there's so many different things. So let me say this. I, I think that the most effective way to solve a problem is to look at it from the perspective, so identify the most severe manifestation of it, and then look at it from the perspective first of the people most affected. Uh, often those are people with fewest resources, but not always and then to look at the collateral impacts on the people surrounding that, to make sure that you're coming up with a solution that really is one for most people. But the key to that is that you're looking for a real solution and you're looking at the core and the root of the, of the issue. And that doesn't mean to say, you know, we always talk about, oh, the root of the issue is, you know, in, in big picture. I'm talking about concrete right in front of us. Um, so that also obviously includes, is this sustainable over time? Or what does it take to maintain, if you actually get a solution or you have an emotion to really maintain it? Um, and to be able to, you know, keep a current and, and, and make sure it's not uh, turned around um, or dismissed or dismantled. The, um, so I think that that's really important because that's not how most anyone in elected office generally responds to anything, or even in the bureaucracy. There's all of these different pressures that usually are there to keep the status quo the status quo. I, I kind of see it as, uh, as gravity, you know? It's uh, change is a challenge. Uh, think of an orbit. And the only way you change your orbit is by creating a huge amount of friction. I think change is the same way, and you know, the status quo wants to stay there. Any institution wants to stay that institution. I don't care what institution it is. And so in order to be able to keep things relevant to how things change and develop in our lives or technologies develop or whatever, we need to be able to be open to changes and to be able to look at it from a forward point of view, not just a back, not, you know, we might have lost stuff, but we don't repeat it, which I think I want to say. So um, I, I just, I, 
you know, you have to be more specific. There's a lot, I have all sorts of things I think we should do. <laughs> but I think you have to be able to explain what you're talking about. You have to be careful about your language. If someone takes it and, and reappropriates it to another meeting, you have to have the narrative to challenge that and not just let that be. And you need to make, you know, and then we need to make sure the C is there so that people who are in the midst of doing that are able to do, uh, to, are able and also sometimes have a little bit of help in order to be able to understand how they have to go and deal with it as opposed to getting defensive and then backing off. Yes. Okay. Um, so Helen, were, were there chapters in the book as you were reading them that were more most um, interesting to you? Uh, I love them all. <laughs> They're all your babies. I, some of the chapters were complicated to do because they dealt with multiple things happening at once. And in those cases, I would probably write that chapter over and over and over again in my sleep for about a month. And then one day I would know I was ready to write it. But no, I loved every part of it. I didn't necessarily like not being able to just sit down and write it out. But it was a great process. I actually really loved the process. Yes. Uh, Laurel, talk about your role. Man. Me? Yeah. My role in the book? Yeah. Well, I didn't have anything to do with the book except that I <laughs> that I knew and worked with Helen for a long time, and I was honored to give her a blurb. Yeah, my you know, and you know, you know, my work. I work. We worked together during the Harold Washington years, and there's so many people in this room who have so many I'm sorry, connections. I thought, I thought I was, that you worked on the book. No, but no. well, we talked about it often. Yeah. We yeah. yeah. Yes. What advice would you think is the best to give to young women Hispanic who are also activists, um, who are also outspoken? Uh, more than what I've already said. <laughs> uh, I will say one thing. It was very. It's always been very common for me to find myself in a room of people who consider themselves powerful asking questions and being told, acted towards as though I was stupid or anything I was asking or suggesting to intimidate me from doing it. So I had a mantra. And the mantra was that I would say, especially in budget hearings or whatever as in the city council, my mantra was, there's no stupid question. And I'd repeat it to myself over and over again until I got in front of that mic and sometimes even before I started speaking. Um, and I think that's really important. That any that there's a often, and I, I'm sure that happens to other people for many different reasons. For me, I was clear it was happening to uh, take advantage of uh, of my gender to make me feel insecure, and um, and I think that we need to know that that's happening and prepare ourselves, mm -hmm. uh, but to and find whatever it is that we need to do. For me, it was a mantra. The mantra, but also like you say, prepare. You were always you were the expert. Of even a budget expert. Didn't mean I didn't feel like it. an idiot when I started asking the questions. And also yeah. because I didn't know the language that they were using. In other words, part of it was, what are you talking about? You know, the, the budget people would start talking in hieroglyphics. <laughs> and, um, and I would, and so I very quickly, and so my response ultimately, and, and then I use this for everything. <laughs> Uh, there's a funny story actually that deals with Spanish. That, uh, that, that I would then just demand that they give it to me in, in simple language. And then I'd ask, and then I'd repeat what they said in simple language back and say, is that what you're saying? And if they say yes, it was. And if they said no, I said, well, then tell it back to me in simple language. And we'd go back and forth. Uh, but there was a great story. I have to tell you this. So Alvarez was the commissioner 
of Department of Human Services when I in my in the early days or early daily days, young daily, and he would. Uh, and of course, I always had lots of questions for the Department of Human Services. And so he was Puerto Rican, and he spoke so perfectly well that anyone could understand him. So great English. I'm sure, you know, he was completely bilingual, no issue. In the budget hearings, he put on the thickest accent <laughs> so nobody could understand him. Oh, that's wow. That's, that's, At least when I asked him. That's so city hall, so city hall politics. One more question. Yes. Oh, hey. Lori. <coughs> Ellen. Yes, Lori. Loves in yards. Yes. You celebrate and salute your superior efforts. <laughs> and I speak on behalf of my low income men and women living with AIDS both living and dead, what moving into Wilson Yards meant to them. That was one of your many finest, many hours were fine. We can go back to the Danny Social Minor Resolution for increased AIDS funding, which is featured in the historic poster of Brian for their environment. To end your alternate career on such a high note, allowing low income, as I said, many women to be with me, to have the luxury. There are many housing programs within the HIPA community, but this was superior housing, all new appliances. It wasn't. And SRO. And you know, in the 80s, I delivered meals for open hand to the Wilson's Men's Club. I was one of the few women, along with yourself, that was allowed to enter. Those were dark, deadly days in uptown. The late Tom Dombrowski, who opened Chicago House. 3527 North Wall under your watchful eye. No hoopla. It was a hospice, and the neighborhood did not carry on because you wouldn't permit it. You fought that these individuals would have a place to go and die with dignity. They Wonderful. That history mm -hmm. is so obviously legendary, historic, but we lived it. Yes. And many people in this room remember those days of Mayor Daly and his resistance. But Wilson Yards is a shining example of what Helen and your efforts and your teamwork was able to accomplish. And so many of my clients, to their dying day, celebrated this magnificent closing opportunity. And just one of the many stories that you will read in this book. Uh, thank you, Helen. Congratulations for the spectacular achievement and, and uh, more success to come with the book.
Helen's going to be up there to, to sign the books. If you haven't bought one already, you've got to get up there and buy one now. Make sure you have her sign it. And there will be a reception across the hall as well. Thanks to all of you for coming. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.